thank you for listening to the Skeptics in the Pub online podcast. This unedited audio is taken from Ethical Realism in a Universe Without Free Will by Aaron Rabinowitz and first broadcast live on the 22nd of October 2020. A video recording of this and many other talks hosted by Skeptics in the Pub online are still available on our YouTube channel. We hope you enjoy this podcast and thank you for your support. Thanks very much, Marsh. I really appreciate it. Thanks for the intro and for letting me come on and do a bit of stand-up philosophy. I do enjoy having a uh, captive audience at different levels of captivity. So this is an an enjoyable activity for me. So today I'm going to talk about a couple of two things that I care very deeply about, um, meta-ethics and free will, and I'm going to try to get you to care way too much about them as well. So In order to do that, I'm going to try to convince you of two claims that you may be initially skeptical of. One, which is morality is real, and another, which is free will is not real. Uh, Now, before I can explain what I mean in either of those cases, I need to take a little detour over and have a conversation about what we mean by the word real. That's unfortunately what philosophers do. They start immediately defining things that seem obvious. Uh, But I think this is important, right? I think a lot of what skeptics do in the world boils down to trying to figure out which things are real and which things are not real. So for example, right, psychic powers, not real, climate change, real, homeopathy, not real, placebo effect, ask my call, right? Um, Those are a lot of really important pieces of work that we can be doing, but I think less frequently we stop and ask, you know, what do we mean by the word real? And do we mean the same thing every time we use that word? Uh, Folks who've listened to Embrace the Void will recognize that this is the problem of the enlightening round. Uh, This is an activity I do at the end of episodes where I have the guest, I give them a list of things and I I require them to tell me, is this thing real or not real? And I don't allow them to elaborate at all on their meaning. And if that doesn't sound like torture to you, um, congrats, you're not a philosopher yet, and I would run as fast as you can, because this is not going to help at all. Uh, but, right, the takeaway from this game is that there is no such thing as real simplicator. There's no real in a simple sense. There's just real in different contexts and in different ways. So I'm going to do my best here to try to define what I mean by real when I call morality real and free will not real. Um, and there are sort of two ways that I can get at giving an account of that, right? The first is going to be, you know, if I was really forced to try to give a universal definition of what I mean by real, I would use something, uh, a a phrase that I share with Philip K. Dick, uh, real is anything that doesn't go away, no matter how much I will it to. I think if you think about the list of things that you believe to be real, you'll find that one pretty roughly tracks the majority of things, though there are a few hard cases out there. Um, And then sort of separate from that idea of real being things that don't go away no matter how much we desire or believe or will them to, right? I also often use real, I think, as a corrective in a sense, as a way of counterbalancing the uh, natural approach that, or, or the, the current cultural approach to a concept. So I think, for example, um, a lot of folks these days tend to lean sort of unreflectively towards the idea that morality is not real. And so I think it's important 
to talk about it in terms of it being real in this way and and make sense of it and substantiate it in those terms, even if, you know, when you get very deep into the philosophical weeds, you can debate whether it's, you know, whether the meaning of real versus not real has any effect in this context. Um, and so, you know, I think that kind of corrective is really valuable. And then on the flip side, I, I think there's a valuable corrective in helping people to understand the ways in which we are truly not free. So that's going to be my goal here, right? Let me start with uh, talking about ethics. So what do I mean by ethics and what do I mean to say that ethics is real uh, while free will is not? So while I uh, define my ethical terms here a little bit, I want you to ponder a question. Um, do you think it is true or do you think it is a case that ethics is constructed or do you think that ethics is real? Now, what do I mean by ethics? I mean this in the broadest way possible. So to me, ethics is the study of things like right and wrong, good and bad, and an infinite number of really annoying, worrisome concepts that go along with those basic ideas of right and wrong, good and bad, flourishing, rights, autonomy, all sorts of messy stuff that comes into play here. Um, and I use this idea ethics interchangeably with morality. They are, for my intents and purposes, uh, synonymous. Um, some people within philosophy will debate that. Not important for our purposes here. So that's the thing that I'm saying is real. And now what do I mean to say that that thing is real? I don't just mean that we engage in the activity of making ethical claims. I mean that there are certain ethical claims that are objectively true. And by objectively true, what I mean is, like Philip K. Dick, they won't go away no matter how much I will them to. Uh, put formally, we would say they are true no matter what any person, real or imagined, moral or mortal or divine, believes about those claims. Okay, this is sometimes referred to as belief independence or stance independence by Schaefer Landau, and I'm cribbing a lot from Schaefer Landau's uh, moral realism, a defense if anybody wants a really thick, deep dive into this concept. Um, so I'm going to use the word objective here when I talk about objective moral claims. Um, the reason we call this view moral realism and not moral objectivism is because Ayn Rand ruined the word objectivism for about 100 years, so we're just staying away from it right now. Um, now, why is this view going to seem weird to a lot of people in this audience, most likely? Uh, it's a little strange that it will seem weird, I think. And if it, you know, if it doesn't seem weird to you, I'll explain why it might seem weird to others, right? Intuitively, um, interestingly, intuitively, I think most human beings believe that their some of their moral beliefs, at least, are objectively true. So... You know, all of us, I think, object think it's objectively true that the Holocaust was wrong. We don't think it's just true because we believe it. We, we think it's true in some really special and robust kind of way. But when we get pressed on the meta ethics on, you know, what is the underlying nature that justifies that claim? It can get hard and we can feel a little squidgy. Um, and most of us, most folks today, I think, who don't sort of ground their ethics in religion will tend to ground it in some understanding of a mix of evolution and social contract. So we will tend to think that uh, we as human beings evolve the capacity to 
make moral judgments. And we did that because it was adaptive to do so, because we as herd animals, right, benefited from creating these systems of morality rather than being sociopathic loners. It worked out better for us. And so now we, as highly over-evolved apes, have taken those adaptive practices and come to see them as these special kinds of objective truths. But they're not really that. They're nothing more than things that we have constructed and all agreed to. So uh, the, the problem with the straightforward evolutionary argument is, as some people will note, right, um, while it is true that our moral psychology is heavily shaped by our evolutionary ancestry, I think, I think it's fair, you know, we can't necessarily say exactly which behavior is shaped in which way, but broadly speaking, I do think it is true that we evolved to act morally in various situations because it was adaptive to do so. Uh, but we can also note that there are behaviors that it would be fairly easy to imagine a scenario in which they were evolutionarily adaptive in that context, but did not seem to align with morality. It's too easy, for example, to think of situations where some version of violating bodily autonomy through sexual assault could be a method of adaptation, even though all of us would agree that doesn't in any way impact the morality of that behavior. So it seems that morality is about something more than merely what we evolved to do. Some folks will disagree with that, right? Some Darwin, you know, like evolution or morally Darwinist kinds of individuals will say we should just do whatever is adaptive and not worry about any further questions about it. But for the most of, I think, the rest of us, we think that uh, what we morally ought to do is come together as a group that have the capacity for rationality and disagreement and consensus and, you know, collaborate and figure out which of our evolved you know, desires or drives or behaviors are morally problematic, the desire to dominate others being morally problematic, we should then create a society in where people are habituated to act more morally. And that's the way that I think a lot of individuals today who sort of intuitively believe in objective truths, moral truths, but don't think that they are really independent of our beliefs about them in the way that I do, will still say we get to something that's kind of like objective morality. We, we achieve a consensus that is a sufficiently like it. Um, this is what's called, you know, constructivism within ethics. And, you know, while I'm sympathetic to constructivism, and I will certainly take constructivism over moral nihilism any day of the week, I think that constructivism faces serious challenges that force them, if they're being consistent, to adopt a more robustly realist view like the one I'm defending. And um, the hypothetical that I always fall back on here that I think is universal for all human beings who I want to be engaging with is uh, a hypothetical where, you know, if we all came together as a, a society or as a, you know, the entire planet or something, and we got together and we decided, we voted as a group that it was now morally acceptable to torture puppies, right? I believe very strongly that that decision by our torture puppy in Continental Congress would have no impact whatsoever on the moral status of torturing puppies. I think that agreements between individuals, no matter how idealized we make them, have no bearing on the actual moral status of 
certain things because the moral status of those things is determined by their features themselves. It is the suffering that is caused to these sentient beings in this particular case that makes this activity objectively immoral, even if everyone on the planet failed to recognize that fact, right? So by this view, it was not the case that slavery was morally acceptable right up until it was criminalized or right up until abolitionists, you know, got a majority position in society. No, it was always immoral. We have just as human beings grown enough in our ethical understanding and grown enough socially to at least acknowledge that fact, even though in many ways we do not still act on it. We are many slaves in the world still today. Um, I think it's fair to say that what we have is access to objective moral knowledge about it being wrong to torture puppies or keep, you know, individuals as slaves. Um, now, I'm happy to discuss any sorts of objections to that view. Um, if I were just talking solely about moral realism, I would, you know, lay into a bunch of specific kinds of objections about, you know, what is the source of that normativity? Um, how does this not turn into tyranny? There are all sorts of legitimate concerns to raise against uh, moral realism. I'm going to just, you know, pause those and put a pin in them for the sake of we can we can have those during the chat um, and shift gears a little bit now and talk some about uh, moral luck or the problem of more of free will. So in following uh, another philosopher, this time uh, Thomas Nagel, who wrote a, a brilliant short paper as a chapter as a part of a book called Moral Luck, that is, is one of the most influential books for me personally um, in my life, right? He uh, defines free will in terms of control and in terms of luck. And I think this is a much better way to understand and define free will than versions like I could have done otherwise. I think the idea that someone could have done otherwise uh, makes appeals to a counterfactual that uh, we can't test or observe. It leads us down a bunch of philosophical blind alleys that, you know, is is problematic. Whereas I think discussions of control and luck um, help us, you know, really understand what matters about the debate and free will. So some of you may be you know, roll your eyes at debates about free will. And I understand I'm sympathetic. Philosophers do quite a bit of navel gazing, but I really do think there's substantial practical application for questions about free will in the worlds of social justice, in the worlds of understanding our own minds. Um, and so, okay, so what do I mean by defining this in terms of control and luck, right? To say that you acted freely in a given situation is, in my opinion, to say you had control over your actions in a robust sense, which is to say that they were not the result of luck. And I'm not going to sort of worry too much about the technical definitions of luck, because I think that we can fairly well understand it through looking at a variety of uncontroversial examples. We can all get the idea of luck with the roll of a die in a game, right? We can distinguish between the things in a game that it seems like you have at least some control over and the random luck variable that for which you genuinely, in theory, do not have control over. And then, right, there are things like the country you're born in, who your parents are, right? You can imagine various features of yourself, your skin, uh, you know, your hair, your height, all of these features, right? You can recognize that they are 
the result of factors it seems like beyond your control. Now, what I think Nagel does brilliantly is highlight how once you start the ball roll the ball so once you start the ball rolling on this problem of luck, you will recognize that ultimately everything is luck. So he lays out several different categories of luck with regard to us as individuals. He lays out consequential luck, which is the luck of how things turn out. Uh, circumstantial luck, which is the luck of what situations you happen to face in your lives. The classic example being, were you, you know, more or less lucky than the people who happened to be born in 1920s, 1930s Germany uh, versus constitutive luck, the luck of all of the features that make you, you and the things that they arise from. So, you know, your capacity to understand complicated abstract thought, your capacity to uh, feel different kinds of emotions to different kinds of degrees. Truly everything about you, I would argue, is ultimately the result of luck all the way down. It's not just your appearance. And where this is really important for skeptics in particular, I think, is recognizing that your beliefs are also 100% the result of luck. Were you lucky enough to be raised in a place that cared about certain kinds of ideas or certain ways of thinking or certain ways of criticizing beliefs? This, this just all ultimately reduces down to factors beyond your control. The gap between uh, a functioning, healthy skeptic and a conspiracy theorist is luck. It's just luck. Uh, another way to put this would be there, but for the grace of luck, go I into QAnon. Um, or to quote Nagel in this paper, he says, you know, the area of genuine agency and therefore of legitimate moral judgment seems to shrink under this scrutiny to an extensionless point. Everything seems to result from the combined influence of factors antecedent and posterior to action that are not within the agent's control. Since he cannot be responsible for them, he cannot be responsible for their results. So what is he saying there? He's saying all of us, I think, imagine within us this little space where we have control, where there's a, you know, to put it as crudely as possible, there's a little person, little version of us inside of us. Maybe it's up here. Maybe it's down here, right? Where there's a you at the control panel, right? And you're pulling the levers. Now, there may be things that are putting pressure on you. We all acknowledge that there are things that pressure us, but we still think that we have the final decision at the end of the day. And what I and Nagel want to say is, that isn't the case because there's not even a you there pulling on all those levers. There's just forces pushing on other forces all the way down. And what we do uh, in a and this is this is cribbing from Buddhists, what we do as human beings is draw a line around various forces that exist in the world and identify with those forces. This thing here is me. Those things over there are not me. And we think that within the bundle of things that we've assigned as our own identity, some of those things are somehow radically free from the interdependent causal web of the whole universe. And I think that is, to me, 
as much magical thinking as belief in a soul. I think that it, when I look inside, to, uh, to quote David, or to crib from David Hume, right? Uh, when I look inside myself and try to find this separate entity I call myself, I find nothing but desires and ideas flowing into and out of this space. And I think that is what is ultimately going on. Now, this idea seriously worries some folks and can lead to a bit of an existential crisis. Um, and that is okay because I think going through existential crises can be good because it leads to insight. Um, and I think there's a reason that this idea is a staple of almost all Western or excuse me, almost all wisdom traditions, uh, both, you know, in the East and in the West. Um, and I think that, Adopting this view far from leading to a place of nihilism or a place of uh, lethargy leads us to a sort of renewed engagement with the world. It allows us to do a variety of things, such as, for example, to to redouble our efforts at epistemic humility. So I think we as skeptics care very deeply about the idea of epistemic humility, which is, you know, not believing things for which we lack justification. Um, but it also allows us to recognize that, you know, all of our beliefs being the result of luck, I shouldn't identify too much with any of them. Now, that's going to come into conflict, into tension, I will say, not necessarily conflict, but tension with the moral realism that I laid out a minute ago, as some of you may already be recognizing. But uh, I do think there is an important value, as in my experience as a philosopher, in being able to see each of the things that are within me that I may currently contingently identify with. I need to be able to acknowledge that if you know, it turned out tomorrow that such a thing was just genuinely not the case, that I could let go of that without attachment, without uh, angst at the loss of that particular belief. That that ability is really what allows us to effectively weed the garden of our own minds and hopefully, if we are lucky, bootstrap our way up to genuine understanding. So epistemic humility, it also allows for compassion, right? The recognition that other people are also 100% the product of luck, I think does genuinely make it easier to let go of a lot of the anger that we justifiably in ourselves carry around because of the way that other people in the world act. People do bad things in the world. And it's not to say that those things are not bad. They are absolutely still bad. And that's why I think it's very important to combine this moral realism with this moral luck idea. But the people doing them are, you know, are doing bad things because they are unlucky, right? For folks who want to hear this in a sympathetic light, I think a lot of us today recognize that, you know, a lot of criminal behavior, for example, is the result of a variety of forces beyond the control of individuals who are in environments that pressure them towards that criminal behavior, that give them no other option besides that criminal behavior, that alter their hopes and expectations in such a way where everyone is just staring at them, waiting for them to engage in that criminal behavior. All of that stuff has a substantial impact. And this is why a lot of folks in the social justice world um, be, you know, believe in some version or are sympathetic to some version of what we call luck egalitarianism, the idea that our job as a society is to counterbalance the luck that 
naturally pervades everybody's lives to recognize that we are all one really bad moment away from needing massive amounts of help as a way to engender support between individuals to engender compassion um and then finally pragmatism there's i think you know a reality that um if we ignore the fact that we are all built out of luck in this way, we get the wrong answers for dealing with a bunch of issues. If we just treat people as these radically autonomous agents, we don't you know, address things that are driving their behavior effectively at all. So you know, one major concern that you may have in all of this is, why does it matter at all if morality is real, if we don't have any free will? We're just going to do what we're going to do anyway. So why does it matter that we should do something or not? And here what I would say is the knowledge that certain objective moral truths exist, in my opinion, can combine with the luck of being properly habituated to care about that fact in order to motivate behavior. So while it is still luck all the way down, my hope is that I am conveying some luck to you now and that that luck will impact your beliefs and that you will then act differently towards others and we can you know, slowly together improve the luck of everyone uh, in the world. To quote uh, Parable of the Talents by Octavia Butler, which I've just been prepping for philosophers in space, you know, the reality is we are all God and God is change and we should shape God. Um, I know that's not the language for everyone, but since I've been talking to the the more uh, secular side, I think it's also important to understand how these ideas can come up in spiritual contexts as well. So let me wrap up then with applying this a little bit, and I want to apply it uh, specifically to uh, this, the context of the skeptical community. So I want you to uh, consider as an example Right, uh, a group called the Good Thinking Society, and their project director, one Michael Marshall. Uh, these group, this group, has recently done substantial work trying to protect cancer patients and other individuals from predatory and often unproven or debunked scientific treatments. Um, and I think this is, you know, I think that this is really important work, but I also think that we as skeptics need to make sure that the work of the Good Thinking Society and Michael Marshall, who some have referred to as Skeptic of the Year, is really actually good or not Right, that it is not in fact true, as some critics have suggested, that these are a bunch of inveterate busybody paternalists uh, and some of history's greatest monsters. Right? How do we how do we figure out who's right in that moral question? How do we suss this out? And in my opinion, evidence alone can't be enough. Evidence is very important, right? It's very crucial that there are skeptics out there you know, debunking these kinds of ideas. But debunking is just one of the steps of the argument because you will oftentimes get pushbacks of the form of, well, I don't care about that science stuff, but what moral right do you have to get involved in other people's lives in this way? We should just let people do what they're going to do. And if you don't want to take the drugs, that's fine. But why are you interceding in this kind of way? And that can come out in a couple of that can sort of as a as a concern can cash out in a couple of different ways. So, for example, you know, this is where the moral realism comes in. I think some people, when they make that argument, what they're really thinking is, you know, morality is just this sort of agreed upon contract. We don't have 
you know, the right to intercede with people when they don't agree within the contract to be interceded with in this kind of way. And so a sort of small L liberal live and let live um, relativism kind of idea emerges. And it's, you know, it's a very understandable response to the kinds of harmful objective moral realism that you've seen throughout the history of society, right? As someone who's defending moral realism, I'm well aware that I am, you know, pulling against the muscle memory of people recognizing that, you know, the church and governments have used appeals to objective morality to commit all sorts of atrocities throughout history. But I don't think that means that we should ourselves abandon appeals to objective morality. I think it means instead that we should stick by those claims and defend them rigorously through secular ethical arguments. So I think good secular arguments can be made for why it is just objectively fucking wrong to offer cancer patients drugs that you don't think work or you don't know work or dangle in front of them the idea that this will provide a cure. Uh, in the medical profession, there are strict rules about not um, dangling a uh, untested treatment in front of someone who's very sick just to get them signed up for research trials, for example, right? This is, it's very clear to us that taking somebody in such a desperate situation and making an offer to them like that decreases their quality of life. It's coercive and it's harmful. And we shouldn't allow people to do that. And if we can see that, you know, in the medical profession, it seems like it's just as obviously true to me with alternative medicine. And so we need to be protecting people from these kinds of predatory, coercive offers, even if the people involved will say, well, technically everybody is consenting, right? The person signed their name. We have to acknowledge – and this this gets very complicated because – you know, paternalism is a real mixed bag. I'm not going to deny that. But I also think that, you know, liberals can sometimes get too nervous about paternalism to the point where we're unwilling to intercede when it is really important to help other people, whether that is in a, you know, global, you know, people trying to murder each other context, whether it is in a, uh, you know, and in various different levels, right, we are anxious about stepping up, I think, and saying, no, this thing is just wrong and we're going to stop you from doing it now. And I think we need to, uh, as skeptics, be comfortable with doing that. Now, the other major uh, point that people will sometimes raise in objection to this kind of getting involved when they say people should be free to do whatever they want, sometimes the emphasis is on the free side and they're you know, the concern is they are getting into that mindset where, um, you know, people are these radically free individuals. And while I do think it is important to distinguish between situations where people have more or less capacity to consent to a situation, right, um, we need to acknowledge that um, – Broadly speaking, we are all the sorts of entities who are highly susceptible to various forms of control and coercion. Um, and this has implications not just in medical professions. It has implications in the free speech debate, uh, in the discussion of moderated online content. I recently put out an article with Marsh through the uh, Skeptics Society, uh, Skeptics Mag, about Monster Island, a group that I ran as a sort of fun test of whether it was really the case that 
individual that the like unmoderated free debate could actually produce good results. Um, and the results were, of course, predictably horrible. And I think that is to me part of the important larger conversation around moderating online spaces. And I think it was really great that, as Mark pointed out at the beginning, they have you know heavy moderation of the channel right now um, because I think that is what is essential for you know, people to interact functionally. And that involves some amount of constraining of people's freedom. And it involves some amount of acknowledging that if you just let, you know, a free marketplace totally unregulated of ideas run around, um, people like Alex Jones will cause substantial amounts of harm. And so we should do our best, I think, to uh, limit those people's access to the marketplace of ideas and do our best to promote uh, moderated constructive discourse. Um, so, in conclusion, right, morality is real, I think. Free will is not real, I don't think. Um, we are luck all the way down. And if we are very, very lucky, we can do right by ourselves and those around us in the short time that we have in this world. And that's, I think, all we can hope for. So, um, thank you all very much. back everybody uh, i hope you've all had a chance to have a have a break to get refresh your drinks i have myself a bottle of water here uh and i'm uh, i'm ready to go again i hope you've had a chance to have a look at the questions we've got some fantastic questions uh in the q a already uh so without further ado i'll uh, bring back your speaker for this evening aaron rabinowitz please go crazy with the clap emoji in the old uh, twitch chat there and uh, Aaron, we're going to dive straight into the questions. And um, you may recall you mentioned torturing puppies. We have a few puppy torture themed questions to uh, to begin with. Uh, so there's an anonymous question uh, which uh, who asks, um, is it only puppies or is it wrong to torture other small, less fluffy animals as well? This is a common question I get, and it's it's absolutely a good question. I could just as easily use the hypothetical of pigs rather than puppies. I I use puppies because I am currently trying to adopt a puppy, and it is the only thing I can think about, and I am spending all of my time thinking about it. So that that's why that to me is why it is the absolute baseline, uh, you know, for all philosophy and morality at this point. Um, but yeah, absolutely. So, you know, the hypothetical is meant to prove that there is an objective ethical truth that I would say all things being equal, one ought not to cause unnecessary suffering to sentient beings and puppies being sentient beings. You shouldn't torture puppies. It's also true for torturing pigs, torturing cows, torturing, um, you know, anything that we have good reason to think is sentient. And that is just one of a variety of objective ethical truths that I think exist in the world. Yeah, I mean, I will say if you are trying to adopt a puppy, uh, going online talking about torturing puppies seems like the wrong way to go about <laughs> it. I mean, this is the one topic I would actively avoid if you're trying to adopt a puppy. They don't do serious background checks on these things. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> um, so you've, you've maybe partly answered uh, this, this next question, or maybe this next question is an extension from the answer that you give. Uh, if we were able to conclusively prove that puppies weren't sentient, would it still be immoral to torture them? Yeah, so this is a really interesting question. Is it immoral to do harm to an entity that isn't sentient? 
I actually think yes, sometimes. There are a lot, a lot of ethicists will say no, that really morality is tied to the well-being of sentient entities. And so if something is not sentient, it is an object to be treated as you, as you wish, essentially. Um, I, take a, I take the view that it is possible for entities that are not sentient to still have the capacity to flourish for there to be something it's like for things to go well for that entity without it being it goes well in the sense of has positive sentient experiences. So, for example, I think we have a moral obligation not to just cut down a tree for no reason. I don't actually think that trees are, are sentient. I think it's unlikely that they are uh, on this side of the sentience line, but I think that they are still living sufficiently complicated entities that have something it's like to be them uh, that, that's something it's like to go well for them, even if they are not sentient beings. And so that being said, there could be a scenario in which, you know, a highly advanced AI that mimics the behavior of a dog while not sentient should be treated ethically just the same as a actual sentient ethical, actual sentient biological dog. Um, yeah, that, so, but then that being said, right, also, some things you're allowed to treat like objects because they are genuinely not sentient and do not meet any other important criteria as well besides sentience. Yeah, I guess uh, you can be as rude as you like to Alexa, and it doesn't really uh, doesn't really matter too much um, at, at the moment <laughs> until the AI yeah, goes for you. <laughs> <laughs> um, before we get to the rest of the questions, uh, one thing we are going to do is a little bit of a, a game slash challenge for our audience. Um, you mentioned at the end of your show, uh, "Embrace the Void." You always have a uh, an enlightening round where you put to the guests the uh, the questions as to what is real and what isn't real, and uh, we're going to actually play that enlightening round with our audience uh, as we go. So audience members, you will see uh, a poll being put to you uh, with, with various different uh, subjects uh, as to whether, and, and you'll be forced to choose as to whether they are real or not real. Uh, there's no equivocation allowed. There's no caveating allowed. You just have to make the binary choice of what is real and what is not real. And so you'll start to see those links appear. Feel free to, to join in that. And at the end of, uh, of our Q&A, we'll find out what you all actually believe uh, and what Aaron's uh, professional opinion of those beliefs are. Uh, beliefs are so keep your eyes peeled for those uh, those links to polls um we've got a question here from uh, alice who asks uh what are your thoughts about what should and should not be debated in a philosophy class and how does that compare to what should be debated on social media yeah it's a good question and let me just point out for folks doing the enlightening round there are no right answers so don't feel any pressure or anything um but yes so when what is it okay to debate in in, in a philosophy class so I, I am of two minds about this. There is the part of me that wants it to be the case that you, in, in that very specific specialized context, we should be able to formalize arguments for and against anything and see how those arguments play out. That that is your job. That, you know, a philosophy class is like the CDC, right? Your job is to be handling really dangerous philosophical materials in a controlled environment where they will not cause a bunch of widespread harm, right? So I'm sympathetic to that. Now, you have to really be thoughtful and careful about this from a kind of social justice perspective in the sense that, um, you know, it's very bad. There, there's, there, there is something problematic to, for example, arguing the humanity of homosexuality or, you know, the morality of homosexuality or the humanity of trans individuals or things like that 
in a situation where there are people who are those things and you know it can feel it can cause feelings for them which are understandable so you know i think there are ways to to do it better and worse is what i would say and that like part of the job of a philosophy teacher is to create an environment where you can definitely talk about things that i don't think are as functional to debate on the internet um, but talk about them in a way that is productive and valuable and that respects the humanity of everybody involved. Um, now, as I, as I gave away in my talk, my, my theory changes quite a bit when we scale up to the Internet. I do not think that the Internet needs to be at, like a philosophy classroom. I don't think that it's beneficial for because you're not creating that kind of space first. You can have spaces on the Internet that are like a philosophy classroom. So we have the Philosophers in Space Facebook group, which I think does function like a classroom in the sense that people can raise hard questions that they are concerned about. Um, that being said, I think even in those kinds of spaces, when you're when you're dealing with, you know, you don't know who's going to read what you're saying, I think we do have a heightened responsibility to, you know, not just sort of casually question whether certain groups of people count as persons or whether certain groups of people just tend to be intellectually inferior than other groups of people, right? I'm willing to step into the ring with race realists and argue about IQ differences between races, but I don't think that it's valuable for people to be casually sort of just throwing those arguments out um, in public spaces in that kind of mm. way. I think there are severe, you know, serious harms from doing that and that we need to be very careful in how we structure our discourses yeah yeah i mean that's something that that, that i'd uh, i'd concur with um as, as you know and some of the listeners uh, some of the viewers will know uh, i have a podcast called be reasonable where i have lots of those kinds of discussions and they're absolutely the kind of discussions that i wouldn't be having um just on Twitter where anybody could see them. You have to know what the show is and tune into the show and get what the show's about to to be in that space to 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 hear that stuff. Because I, I think it's much more important to have those, to understand what arguments uh, people ha are putting forward for positions, um, but not necessarily do that in a place where those those arguments can um, get out into the real world and, uh, and potentially have real world repercussions for people. Um, so we have a, a question here from uh, an anonymous questioner who asks, uh, do you think that for some or even many people, the realization that free will is an illusion may be intolerable and actually very negative for their mental health? Yes, in much the same way that for many people, the realization that God does not exist could be intolerable or really harmful for their mental health, that people who have constructed an identity around a fiction will to some extent, suffer harm from the destruction of that fiction, I think. Now, is that, does that mean that we necessarily shouldn't make these arguments? I don't think so, because I do think also that those individuals can go, can make it through that harm and into a better way of understanding, especially if they are helped along by someone who understands what they are going through, that they can, they can be shepherded away from the nihilist place that I do actually also hear that a lot of you know, atheists go into when they leave religion. They they get they they lose track of where their morals are founded because if they're not based in God, where are they coming from? And for a lot of folks, that can be very difficult. Um, and I think that doesn't you know. Now, what, what does that mean? Uh, I do think that, for example, it's okay to let people continue to believe in religions. Um, I I'm not going to try to force people not to believe in God or not to believe in free will because I think that brings with it all sorts of different other kinds of harms. 
but it's like given the choice between helping somebody understand the world through this no free will lens versus the alternative, I think this does give them much better options. And, um, you know, I think the harms that they can experience can be substantially mitigated and the benefits can be substantially increased just by helping them through it. Okay. Um, so we have a, a question here, another anonymous, uh, another anonymous question, who asks, um, do you think how moral an individual is, is relative to the culture and context that they exist in, or is it absolute on an objective scale? And what's the impact of external look factors on that? Yeah, so this is a good question. And I didn't, um, in, the, in the talk, I didn't talk quite as much about moral responsibility as talking about moral truths. And those two things do come apart. So I think it's objectively immoral to be a member of the Nazi party. But when it comes to the moral responsibility of an individual who was born and raised into the Nazi party, who had no hope, in my opinion, no reasonable hope of being sort of maneuvered out of that situation, you know, that does, I think, mitigate to some extent how much we condemn that person. And I think, you know, the question of moral responsibility to me, I think, is the hardest of the questions. I mm. think that moral truths, I can comfortably say, exist objectively, but how we deal with moral responsibility is still a mess for me personally. I think that we do need to hold people morally responsible sometimes, practically speaking. I think we need to encourage people to, to in some ways, hold themselves morally responsible because it's good to habituate them to feel that way. And um, at the same time, the, the upshot of my view, if we're being totally honest, is that no one is responsible for anything and no one deserves to be punished for anything. There is no such thing as deserving to suffer for what you have done. And so moral responsibility for me becomes a lot about helping people to act better and mitigating suffering if you are lucky enough to be the sort of person who cares about those sort of things and does so. Yeah. And so this, this is something that's a bit of a, a quandary, I guess, for, for skeptics. If we accept as, as you're putting forward the idea that moral look and the idea of look having such a, a huge impact, you know, the, the main impact on, on where we end up, which is a, a view that I'm quite sympathetic to. Um, where does that lead us when it comes to people like Peter Popov, uh, like uh, Jim Humble, the guy who invented Miracle Mineral Supplement and has spent the last 40 years giving it to people uh, to, to, to tell them it will cure their malaria when it's actually just industrial bleach? Um, the ordinary sort of man on the street, uh, person on the street kind of view of that would be these people are monsters who are exploiting people deliberately in some cases, knowingly, uh, knowingly so. And that's quite an easy position to take. But if we um, accept that them end up ending up in that position is in itself an, uh, an act of luck. Um, where goes our judgment then? And, and how do we deal with that as skeptics? I, I, yeah. So, so you're asking about how we feel about towards both the patient and the, the doctor in these situations. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the people, especially people who we, we would get the sense that they um, are maybe well aware of what they're doing. You know, Peter Popov was proven to be, to be fraudulent in the stuff that he was doing when he said he was healing people of various different ailments and taking a lot of money from them. Um, it'd be easy for us to condemn that. But if we have a moral look position, then it's harder for us to, to condemn him for that because of the circumstances that got him there, whatever those circumstances may well be. Yeah. And this is so, you know, there's a there's a deep philosophical tension in ethics between justice and mercy, broadly speaking, that I think 
sort of gets at the question that you're asking here, right? If someone has knowingly done something wrong, how, what is the right way to what is the right balance of demanding justice and uh, and and having mercy? Now, the the compassion stuff that I talked about in the lecture, uh, you know, leans towards the mercy side of things and and having you know compassion for individuals who who do wrong, you know, even knowingly by recognizing that they, you know, got there through the result of factors beyond their control, right? I think there is a sympathy for that. There's actually um, a very, there was a popular example about this recently for folks who watched The Good Place, uh, the solution to the problem of hell and The Good Place sort of roughly involved everybody getting a chance to get into heaven eventually, Right. And that kind of redemptive, everyone gets redeemed eventually model is, I think, ultimately where we should end up on the the, from the moral luck perspective. Now, we have to balance that with the practicalities of being in the world and people actually being harmed, though. So you have to prevent the person from doing more harm. And there I think there is reason to say that people who've been harmed should be compensated in some way by people who've done harm to them, that we can bring about some degree of justice in that kind of way. And that by doing so, we also create systems where future individuals will be disincentivized to, um, to act in those ways as well. So there are practical justifications for still holding people responsible while also acknowledging at a cosmic level, no one is ultimately responsible for everything for anything. Okay. Um, so we have a, a question here from Bremner, who asks, uh, how do we, uh, assuming such a designation means anything, the we, um, how do we gain access to the status of the objective morality of an action? Yeah, how do we get access to the status of it? So, right. So there are, in essence, kind of two main problems with moral realism. There's the metaphysical question of what are what are these moral truths and where are they out there in the world? Are they like physical things or how do they exist in the world? And then there's the question of how do we as um, sentient beings gain access to them, right? How do we gain knowledge of those moral truths? And so to me, the access question is more, well, I would say the access question is I think easier of the two I think the answer is very much of a partners in crime kind of argument alongside all of the other bootstrapping up of knowledge that we do as human beings. So um, you could just as, you know, so, so this is actually a very famous attack on moral realism by uh, a philosopher named Susan Street or Sharon Street, excuse me, I apologize. I have to butcher names. It's my job. Um, but she, she argues the evolutionary debunking argument for moral realism that, you know, even if there were moral truths, we wouldn't have access to them because our knowledge is entirely developed by these evolutionary processes, which are interested in figuring out what's adaptive, not figuring out what's true. They don't teach us to track the truth. They teach us, teach us to track what is adaptive in various circumstances. Um, now, my pushback on that is the same argument can be made for all of our knowledge. All of our knowledge comes about as a result of evolutionary systems that are not actually fundamentally about knowing the truth of reality. They're about getting the right, as much of useful information into our brain as fast as possible so that we can react as quickly as possible to our circumstances. So this is you know, why we have a bunch of cognitive biases, why we didn't evolve to be perfectly rational agents is because it was much more adaptive to be these sort of messy, irrational creatures that we are. Um, but 
I still think we can get access to objective knowledge of a variety of sorts. I think science gives us a method, you know, to get access to empirical claims. And I think for morality, while it is harder, it's not impossible. And it's a process that involves a mix of things like empathy slash compassion. And some people prefer one of those words more than the other. So I put them, I put them together. I think they're both important actually, but you know, some people really don't like empathy. Um, but that's a, te- that's a technical secondary debate. Um, so it's a mix of empathy and reason and, and argument and observation, right? That I observe that, uh, you know, I see people suffering and I observe that that suffering, in my opinion, has badness sort of built into it in a fundamental kind of way. And I try to go about um, improving that by using empiricism to figure out what is the right way to help people. Uh, yeah, the idea that uh, some people don't like empathy, I think that's pretty borne out by uh, pretty much all of world events. Around. We, we've all met those people for sure. Um, we've got a question which is kind of an extension from there, I think. Um, uh, it's another anonymous question. Some people just don't put their names in. That's absolutely fine. It's not It's not suspicious that these are all anonymous questions, just in case you weren't, uh, in case you weren't sure. Um, these are all they you, ask, are, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> uh, they ask, uh, in a meritocracy, uh, the winners of the DNA lottery earn a lot more money than average. This seems uh, as arbitrary as a, a as a class or a caste system so in that sense is a meritocracy bad yes <laughs> great question um I, I mean a we don't know because we never had a meritocracy but if we did yes a, a meritocracy is a system that reinforces luck in egalitarianism that reinforces an, in a, an inequity of luck or an imbalance of luck because merit if you if you decompose it down to its composite parts is made up of a bunch of kinds of privilege the privilege to be educated the privilege to not have to worry about food scarcity you can you know there's a lot of great work and this is why in the talk i talked you know i said that like the moral luck stuff is really important in my mind for social justice work because it's helping us to recognize that merit and that you see this so much in in critical race theory and critical theory in social justice analysis that a meritocracy gives the illusion that autonomous agents are being justly rewarded for a system where they acted properly. And so it is all okay. Everything is morally acceptable in that framework. And it's not true for a variety of reasons, mostly because meritocracies usually hide non-meritocracies. But even if you actually had a meritocracy, there's still the problem that, um, you know, individuals who are born with a variety of forms of problematic luck will just have that luck compounded over their lives. Um, So now, because I'm a philosopher, an ethicist, I always have to give the opposite side of everything. Uh, The opposite side of this is you want something that allows for individuals to flourish and for their flourishing to connect up to the flourishing of society as a whole. And that is some system whereby people are, you know, find their way into the activities that are projects of worth for them. And that those projects of worth come together to improve the quality of life for everyone. Right. That's in theory, the ultimate goal of a meritocracy. Um, I think the way that you ultimately get there is by a mix of, you know, things like luck egalitarianism and recognizing that we don't currently live in a meritocracy while trying to, you know, trying to work towards um, justice and equality 
more so than working towards feeling like you have correctly rewarded the right people and punished the people who didn't deserve to be rewarded. Uh, okay, uh, we have a, a question here from uh, Feigl, uh, who asks, is it wrong to harm animals so that we can eat them when it is perfectly possible to live by eating only plants? Um, that's right. So this is the, the basic question of ethical vegetarianism. I So I think, yes, though it may be one of these situations where... So, so there there are levels of things that are wrong, but can be acceptable in certain circumstances, I think. I think that it is, um, th there are, so, so I'm going to back up a little bit to explain that, right? My moral realism involves a variety of moral foundations that I think are irreducible to each other and are essentially in competition in, a, in, a, in, a, in most situations. We are always trading off between autonomy and the greater good, for example, right? We all understand very keenly right now the trade-off between autonomy and the greater good, <laughs> right? So when we ask about eating meat in various kinds of situations, I think that there can be things that are valuable, that are important, that can justify eating meat for more than merely purely subsistence. I also think there are situations where individuals need to eat meat for subsistence purposes. And in those situations, I think it's, you know, that it's uncontroversially ethical in that sense. Mm. But you do still have an obligation to how you treat the animal. Um, and I think, you know, someone who's obviously talked a ton about this and influenced a lot of people is Peter Singer, who has argued, you know, to varying degrees that people have a lot more obligation towards animals than they think that they do. And, you know, my ultimate take, and I think this is where Singer has ended up, is that, we need to worry less about everybody cutting themselves off from eating meat completely and worry a lot more about getting even remotely closer to an ethical universe where people are eating meat far less. They're eating meat that is sourced in better ways. I just actually, uh, for, for non-patrons, it'll come out tomorrow. The episode of Embrace the Void is with an animal rights ethicist who talks about, for example, if you're going to eat meat, you should eat bivalves, that like clams are better than more sent, you know, more developed, more likely to be highly sentient organisms. They also happen to be better environmentally. So there are other mm. kinds of factors that come into eating meat besides just ethics towards the animals themselves. Um, so short answer, right, right, I got way too long answer, right? Um, it is pro tanto wrong. There are situations in which I think it is okay. Um, we should all be doing it less and in more ethical ways as much as our luck permits. Gotcha. Um, you mentioned this uh, at one point in your talk, so it's something to come back to. Um, does false hope uh, of uh, ineffective treatments, does it really always damage the patient's quality of life, which is something that you said as you were, as you were speaking? Okay, yeah. So this is a, um, a really cool sort of philosophical twist, actually. So in sort of the classic modern liberal mindset, in the sense that we're all classically modern liberals at this point, um, we tend to think that there's not there's no harm caused by giving somebody a choice, right? If I give you a choice, the worst case scenario in some people's minds is you just don't take the choice, right? Mm. If, it's a, if it's a bad option, you just don't take it. You're not harmed by turning down that option in this kind of way. But actually, I think there's good arguments to be made that merely presenting somebody a choice 
can cause them substantial harm in a variety of situations. So a classic example of this is legalizing, legalizing euthanasia. I am in favor of legalizing euthanasia, but there is a good case to be made that especially in a society like America, you, may, you all might not, may not be familiar with about this idea, but here in America, people daily make horrible, horrible life and death decisions based on monetary complications mm. rather than medical complications, right? In a society like that, giving somebody the freedom to end their lives puts them in a potentially coerced situation where they may feel like a burden to their family financially and therefore feel pressured into making that choice. And even if they turn down the euthanasia, their quality of life could be substantially reduced by feeling guilty about the fact that they turned down euthanasia. So in a sense, the paternalism of protecting them from that option actually improves their quality of life. Now, that's only some people. Other people obviously benefit from having access to being able to end their lives when they are in, in terminable suffering, for example. And the, the, the hard job of ethics is to try to balance those realities in a world where you, can't, you can only make your policies so nuanced, right? And the solution, of course, is make healthcare not cost so much, and then people can make the right <laughs> healthcare choices, and then they can choose to end their lives in an uncoerced manner. Um, now, uh, tying this back to the question about the, the offering of medical treatment, I think it's the exact same argument in those kinds of cases. I think individuals who are medically desperate, if you get, make them an offer that they think might help them, you are reducing their quality of life, because, especially if it, if it is this fraudulent kind of offer mm. in this kind of way, because you know they have to choose between trying it and seeing if it works, and then you're costing them, and maybe you're taking them away from other kinds of treatments. Or if they even don't accept it, right, you've now introduced into their mind this kind of doubt. Maybe I didn't do everything I could have done or something like that. So there's so many ways in which I think this is perniciously harmful to individuals um, that, you know, I'm not going to say that everyone in every single one of these situations suffers the same degree of harm. But like, I think that is the predictable outcome in those situations. And that that is very morally significant. Yeah, I mean, I think even with uh, the analogy you, you brought up to, to euthanasia, that even that's a uh, an imperfect analogy because euthanasia works. <laughs> it does actually achieve the goal okay, of, that, it, that it states, which obviously ineffective treatments don't. I mean, the, the, the best case scenario is the people carry on taking the treatment that works, but just have in their back of the mind, maybe I should have tried that miracle drug and maybe things would have worked out better for me. So you've always got that kind of that doubt that wouldn't be there if you weren't offer if you weren't allowing them to be offered uh, quack treatments. Um, mm -hmm. We have a question from uh, William Costello who asks: uh, Do you believe in Sam Harris's idea that science can actually map the moral landscape? No, it's another good question. Um, <laughs> do you want to elaborate on that? Or <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I read moral landscapes back when in my uh, master's program, not in the program, but just while I was a master's student. And, you know, it's been a long time since I've read it. But my take on it, roughly speaking, as a meta ethicist was, this is fine to decent on the normative ethics side. And there's no meta ethics to be had in this book, right? He just doesn't answer the meta ethical question of realism versus anti-realism, in my opinion. He, if I remember correctly in the book, essentially says, I could have done all of this reading and it would have been really boring. So I decided not to do it, if I remember correctly. Um, he may have been joking. Crazy very quickly what, he, what we mean by the moral landscape, just for people who, who haven't read uh, the book, just the, the oh, one sure. sentence version rather than uh, the, uh, a full expan uh, expanding of it. 
Yeah, so roughly speaking, what he says is there is this sort of moral landscape where there are, you know, we, we can imagine morality like a conceptual map, right, where there are peaks around the, something similar to the moral foundations that I've been talking about, right? There's a peak around, you know, maximizing utility or something and a peak around maximizing autonomy and a peak around, um, you know, rights and such like that. And in between those peaks, there are trade-offs between those different peaks, similar to the trade-offs that I've been describing. And we can map out all those trade-offs via science or something like that, right? And we can find the, the sweet spot between all of these different trade-offs, right? And I'm, as a pluralist, sympathetic to this in practice. My, my moral landscape works similarly, though I would describe it more like a plateau, right? Rather than a bunch of mountains, there is this, this plateau of acceptable moral um, systems, right? And around that plateau, you can imagine, are the points like maximizing utility and respecting autonomy. And as you move towards one, you move away from another. But outside of that plateau of balancing them correctly, there's a bunch of stuff that's really unacceptable, right? Where you completely moved away from respecting utility and have only are concerned with autonomy in a way that is deeply harmful. Um, so you got to stay on the plateau, essentially, is my view. Um, now, you know, what doesn't work in the moral landscape is that he doesn't have an argument about how I think his argument about how we gain access to moral knowledge is wrong. I don't think that it's the kind of thing that you can't you can't get the normative truths by measuring anything with science. Right. The, the claim, all things being equal, one ought not to cause unnecessary suffering to sentient beings is not a testable hypothesis in the sense that science wants it to be a testable hypothesis. Mm. I think it is something that we can gain knowledge about partly through our experiences, right? We as human beings gain access to the knowledge that it's wrong to torture puppies by seeing someone about to do it and seeing the horror of that reality and stopping them from doing it, right? But um, the truth of it is not something that you could ever build a machine to measure. This is why I'm, I'm what I, what's called a non-natural moral realist, which is the even weirder kind of moral realism, um, is I, I don't think that these are scientific claims um, I think that they are uh, true claims, and that, that leads me into a place where I think that there are claims that are true but not scientifically provable, which bothers some people, but I think is the way the reality works. Uh, okay, uh, so obviously we've been talking about philosophy for some time now, so uh, we inevitably have uh, the following question, which uh, Simon uh, offers uh, very succinctly. What would you do in the trolley dilemma? Do you pull the lever or not pull the lever? Yes, eventually it all comes down to the trolley. Um, <laughs> and I'm, I'm okay with the trolley. Some, some ethicists hate the trolley problem. I do not hate the trolley problem. I think, in, like all tools, when used in the right context, is a very useful tool. Um, now, which trolley problem, right? If we just mean I pull the lever, I kill the one person, I save the five, which is the one that most people have in mind, um, I, I come down on I should pull the lever, I don't know if I would psychologically be able to do so, but I do think that I have a moral obligation to pull the lever in that context. Excellent. Um, and the, re the reason being, I think that um, co consequences dominate in that particular situation, that the deontological principles that could conflict there do not overwhelm the need to save more people in that circumstance. 
Gotcha. Um, we have an anonymous question here. Uh, one of the few consensus views in philosophy is that you can't get ought from is. Uh, if that's true, how can morals be real? Good. Yeah. So this is David Hume's is ought problem. Now, I first want to um, clarify what I believe Hume is actually arguing for in this very, very famous passage where he says you can't infer an ought from an is. He's actually critiquing arguments, which you see quite a bit in the world, where um, this, the person essentially does a kind of naturalistic fallacy and says, because something is this way, we ought to act a certain way, where they effectively hide the moral premise in their argument, right? So, you know, for example, homosexuality is unnatural, therefore we ought not to do it, right? Um, where the implicit premise there is we ought not to do things that appear unnatural, right? And you can certainly argue that moral premise. So I don't think that Hume is actually saying we can't gain knowledge about morality. There are different, there's, a, there's a huge debate about whether he's a moral realist or not, but my moral realist reading of David Hume, right, through my particular lens of approaching it, is the important point here is People need to make their moral premises explicit, and they need to not pretend that they can ground those moral premises in some sort of non-moral claims, which is why I stick to being a foundational non-natural moral realist, even though that is a freakish position within philosophy. The majority of metaethicists probably would laugh at me for holding and consider me extremely naive. I think that's the right answer. I think the right answer is there are there are are moral truths that are objectively true, much like the speed of light is objectively true. We can't measure them in the same way as the speed of light, but they do, they are true. And if you use them correctly in your premises of your moral arguments, then you can correctly combine them with empirical claims about the universe to say, you know, and therefore we ought not to torture puppies. Okay, um, so uh, Alice has a, a question here, and this relates to the uh, experiment uh, that you wrote about for, for the skeptic, which uh, people should uh, go and seek that out. It's a fantastic article. You write about it. Um, but Alice asks, going into your experiment, uh, did you think that Monster Island could have turned out differently? I, I think there is a non-zero percent chance that it could have turned out differently, but I do not believe the percent chance is much higher than non-zero. Um, I think, you know, within the bounds of the rules that we initially tried to set that were then immediately undermined, right? If the goal was to not moderate, then I think, I think what it ultimately proved is that unmoderated spaces almost necessarily, though not 100% necessarily, descend into madness over time. Um, so, you know, I, I think, but again, I think you all, for sure, as skeptics, have to be sympathetic to the kinds of scientific work that goes out there and rigorously confirms something that we everyone then goes, oh, well, obviously, thank you, science. <laughs> we all knew that was the case, right? But if you don't do the work, right, and I'm, I'm joking, this is not real science, please don't report me to the, IR bar, you know, the IRBs or whatever. Um, <laughs> but, like, you know, if you don't, if you don't do run the tests, Right. Then there are still all of those people out there in the world saying unmoderated free speech is really what we need. And people need to stop silencing other people. And, a, you know, a kingdom of ends will dawn in some magical way. 
Uh, there's a, a related question to that. Um, uh, there's an anonymous uh, question who asks, um, who is to arbitrate which speakers are to be banned from the, the market for ideas? Does this assume an infallible judge or an infallible moderator? Good. Yeah. So, so this is the question of who gets to decide, um, which is a question that all ethics faces, not just moral realism, I'd like to point out, right? <laughs> the the anti-realists also have to answer the question, who's going to, unless, you, unless you're going to be a thoroughgoing nihilist, right? You're stuck with it, who's going to answer this, you know, who's going to make your moral decisions question. Um, and I think the answer is, it's really complicated and we're kind of screwed right now. Um, you know, ideally, it would be done through, so as I think, I think the good model, right, the ones that you see that work online, for example, are community moderated where the community sets you know fundamental principles and makes those principles explicit and then follows them consistently and like who gets to decide in those situations is the community right mm -hmm. the community sets their their guidelines in that kind of way and then they argue about them forever and ever and ever and you tweak them and no one's happy and you tweak them some more and no one's happy and that's the game right that's society um so I think, you know, we do. We're the people who make the decision because nobody else is going to do it. God doesn't exist. And like, you know, the answers aren't going to come down from a telescope or something. So it's got to be us. And it's us doing the best we can, collaborating, listening to each other, you know, doing the messy work of arguing out compromises between those irreducible competing moral truths that I talked about. Yeah, and I think that answers another question we had, which is about um, uh, in order to be objective, we need a, a standard reference. And what's the absolute standard that uh, would, would make a certain morality objective and who decides on that standard? I, I guess, could you speak to just that little bit outside of not just who's involved in the marketplace of ideas, but whether uh, the absolute standard for, uh, for, for certain mora uh, morality would be? Uh, so, so, sorry, I'm sorry. It, I'm not sure I understood the question. Yeah, well, I'll read the question as it, as it stands here. In order for something sure. to be objective, we need a standard reference. Uh, what's the absolute standard that would make certain morality objective, and who decides that? Uh, so this this may be a possible crosstalk between the concept of objective and the concept of something like absolute. Um, so... You know, my my moral foundations are, as I've explained, defeasible, right? I think all things being equal, one ought not to cause unnecessary suffering. But I don't think it's true that in every single case, you absolutely shouldn't cause unnecessary suffering. I apologize if I'm not answering the question correctly as, uh, as the person had intended it here. Um, I, I don't think... So I, it's... Maybe there is some correct ultimate right way to balance out the moral the competing moral truths that i believe exist i'm not sure there is just one absolute right way and i lean towards thinking there are sort of a variety of acceptable ways of balancing them out um and they are measured according to these different foundations and and are better and worse to various degrees as a result um, but I, I, don't, I think it's probably unlikely that there exists like a society, for example, that manages to perfectly balance out all of these ethical problems um, entirely. Um, and I just saw in the chat somebody commenting about um, I, I, I used the word madness earlier and I apologize. That's uh, unfortunately ableist and I apologize for that as well. Uh, OK, um, somebody asks, uh, are you open to changing your mind on your view that one should always be willing to change one's mind? <laughs> um, it's a very good. It's a good question. 
Um, let me put it this way. I can't imagine a piece of evidence or argument that would lead me to believe that torturing puppies was ethical. And I think if I were presented with something like an argument that initially appeared to give me the impression that it, it made that argument successfully, I wouldn't trust the argument. And I would believe that some sort of trickery was at play and that further work would uncover that trickery. So I believe, so, so uh, to put this in ethics terms, I am a moral intuitionist. I believe in, I believe in the use of moral intuitions in various forms of reasoning. I think that we have an into like, ultimately we are relying on our intuition that the Holocaust was wrong. And if a theory tells us that that intuition is wrong, that is a reductio ad absurdum of the theory and not a disproof of our claim. So ultimately I think there are certain objective ethical truths and the things that follow from them about certain behaviors in the world like slavery that, yeah, I don't think you will ever need to or should change your mind about slavery. Um, but I think, you know, that being said, the Bayesians get really mad at me if I say that you should hold some, any, any belief with absolute certainty that there should always be some small space in there for doubt or else you're doing something wrong. So take it up with the Bayesians, I guess. Yeah, the last thing you want to do is piss off the Bayesians. It's not, no, uh, not, not a good word. place to be. <laughs> uh, we've got two <laughs> questions which are on a, a similar theme. Uh, so Wombat Hollywood uh, asks, if we are in fact living in a simulation, do I still have free will? And there's an anonymous question. Uh, does our idea of morality change if we're found to be in a giant AI simulation, which some uh, postulate is, is likely or possible? Yeah, well, I guess I mean, it, it depends on the simulation. Um, is it a simulation that is perfectly simulating our consciousness as well as every other piece of us so that we are, you know, still sentient entities that are being simulated in that, you know, environment? If that's the case, then yes, I think we still have moral obligations to virtual simulated. And, and there actually is really interesting cutting edge AI ethics work being done about the concerns of virtual hells, essentially, of putting simulated AI entities into horrible scenarios so that we can do statistical analysis on them while they are suffering in these environments. Um, so I think, you know, a simulated consciousness that has the same features as a non-simulated consciousness carries with it all the same moral conditions as well. Um, so I, I don't think it ultimately matters, nor do I think this makes a difference when it comes to free will, because I already didn't think you had free will in the real world. So I don't know why I would have any more belief that you had free will in a deterministic simulation. Um, you know, you can argue that we are in it. Like, I also, by the way, personally think that the simulation argument doesn't work. There are various versions of it that suffer from either theoretical or um, empirical problems that I think make it the case that you you shouldn't just infer that we are likely to be living in a simulation right now. We might be, but I don't think it's like Bostrom believes that, um, you know, you can effectively say it's almost certain that we are living in a simulation right now. I think that's much too strong. Gotcha. Um, we've got a question here that asks, uh, there was a lot of stuff in, in your talk there, and uh, the, the person says they didn't quite take all of it in. Could you recommend some further reading? Uh, and they say preferably fairly short. <laughs> <laughs> um. So, I mean, before you do, uh, like, I, I can recommend reading, but I will also, as a podcaster, shamelessly plug my podcasts where, you know, it's my job to downshift this kind of stuff through various kinds of um, media. 
So, um, you know, Embrace the Void, I've talked about um, moral realism back on an episode that was called something like um, Papa Bear and Metaethics. This is back when we didn't make our names quite as clear, um, but I, I laid out my argument for moral realism there and over on Philosophers in Space. Um, I laid out my argument for um, moral realism. Uh, I don't remember what episode it was in, though. It may have been it may have been actually in one of the episodes with The Good Place, now that I think about it. Um, and I also, I've given um, a lengthier version of that part of the talk to a skeptics group, and it's available online if you Google um, moral realism without God and my name or embrace the void. You can find it on YouTube. So, you know, I've, I've, I've tried to unpack it there more. Um, from there, the, the curve is unfortunately steep, I think, right? I would say, you know, you can look at, um, you know, Wikipedia is not the worst starting place. I don't care if they, they take away my professor license for saying that. Um, you know, start with Wikipedia and see what it says. Move from there to the Internet Encyclopedia of Philosophy, which is like the, the tier two difficulty of online philo philosophical resources. And then if you're feeling really bold, go to the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, which is the heavily annotated, very dense um, encyclopedia source online. And then if you really, really want to go all in on moral realism, go read Schaefer Landau's Moral Realism, A Defense, especially the first half of the book. I think it's very good for laying out the position that I believe in. Um, now on the moral luck side, um, there is a short paper for this one, thank, Lord, thank the Lord. It is a little bit difficult, but I would say it is, you know, readable by philosophical standards. And it's called Moral Luck by Thomas Nagel. There's a free PDF you can download just by Googling Moral Luck by Thomas Nagel. Um, and that, to me, is the strongest argument about luck and free will in any condensed form out there. Um, and then from there, you can you know do the same process that I just described of looking at uh, all of these additional sources on moral luck. Um, yeah, I think those are the main places I'd go. Excellent. Well, uh, speaking of uh, of your podcast, I think it's probably time for us to have a look at the results of the enlightening round that we put to uh, our, our audience. Uh, so we asked you, real or not real, uh, colours, we had 57% real. So the audience very happy, well, marginally happy to go with, uh, with uh, real on colours. Uh, free will, 27% uh, said real, 72% said not real. It's not bad. You've done pretty good at convincing them there. Morality, 50-50. Right. I love it. You've you've not sold uh, the case for morality, uh, I'm afraid. Right. Well, now uh, I know which one's harder. So in the future, I know which one to work <laughs> harder on. That's good to know. Uh, we have knowledge, 100% real. Uh, skeptics audience there. Um, and then we, have <laughs> then we have society, 68% uh, say real, 31% say not real. Uh, so I don't know whether that changes your, your opinions or views on anybody involved in any of this uh, or, or not, Aaron. No, society's um, a fun one. Uh, so we have two final questions that I'll ask you. So Alice uh, asked the question, uh, philosophy, uh, real or not real? <laughs> Unfortunately real. Um, <laughs> clearly causally effective in all the worst ways. Um, you know, I mean, right, it, it, it won't fucking go away no matter how much I will it to. <laughs> Therefore, it's real. Um, yeah, no, I think it's real. And I think it's really important. And I think that, uh, you know, part of my project of worth in life is trying to bring more philosophy to atheist and skeptical communities that I think are very philosophical by nature, but have moved towards the science emphasized side of skepticism and atheism, which I think is very valuable 
but like you know, I, I think that that science and philosophy are meant to be together. They they arose together. They are, you know, I would argue that science is part of philosophy, that it's effectively just a kind of doing philosophy in the right way. Um, so, yeah, I think I think philosophy is real and one and important and incredibly infuriating. And that, yeah. OK, well, uh, this might uh, lead us to the, the last question. Uh, we'll find out whether this one's inc- incredibly infuriating or not. Uh, Aaron Rabinowitz, real or not real? <laughs> Not real. That's, that's a good one. Yeah. Uh, no, I am. I am a bund- I'm a densely packed causal nexus to quote the Buddhists. <laughs> I am a bundle of forces. Um, I, I lack svabhava, which is the Sanskrit word for um, separateness or independent existence. I believe that we are uh, radically codependent arising systems that the boundary between you and i is a fiction that we construct for our own amusement and that can be dissolved with proper use of meditation or controlled substances and i think um the belief that i is a a radically separate individual exists is the root of my suffering and the more that i can train myself away from it the better off i am (laughs) Uh, well, in terms of boundaries between people, I'm afraid we've hit the boundary of our, our time for this evening. So please, uh, everyone in the audience, give a huge round of applause uh, wherever you may be uh, for Aaron. I'm sure you'll agree. A fantastic talk, a fascinating uh, Q&A. Thank you so much for spending time with us, uh, Aaron. And we'll see you all next time. That was the Skeptics in the Pub online podcast. For more sceptical content, including information about future talks, please like us on Facebook, follow at SITP on Twitter, or head to our website at sitp.online, where you'll also find a link to all the ways you can get in touch with us, including our Discord server. Music in this episode was provided by Thula Bora and used with permission. Until next time, thanks for listening.